You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We have turned a corner on the COVID pandemic, though we are not over with it. Governor David Ige and key cabinet members announced that we are moving from an emergency response to a phase where we manage the coronavirus as a regular disease. Here's State Health Director Libby Char explaining the strategy that mirrors the efforts nationally. We have three main goals that we are following, and this, this mirrors the national plan as well. So first is to protect against and treat COVID-19. Second is to detect and prepare for new variants. And third is to enhance community resilience. So with regard to protecting against and treating COVID-19, um, that speaks to things like vaccination and testing and therapeutics and prevention. So for vaccinations, they remain widely available to all residents. Mass vaccination clinics have been phased out, um, but we still have plenty of vaccination available and it has already moved from these large vaccination centers to pharmacies, health centers, healthcare providers and whatnot. So there's lots of vaccine out there and we encourage people to go get their vaccines and make sure you get that first booster shot. That's really, really important. And for those who are eligible, we also suggest getting that second booster shot. Testing has shifted from temporary community testing sites to testing by health providers and at-home tests. There's still also a lot of testing available. There are community um, testing that's being done by the counties and through county providers. Testing for schools via Operation ET and through the uh, Department of Health sponsored school testing. And Hawaii's participating in a bunch of federal programs that allow us to have access to testing as well. We also are transitioning a lot more to the over-the-counter home test kits, and those are pretty widely available. They can be mailed to your home for free from covidtests.gov. And over half a million test kits were already purchased and sent to the Department of Education to help keep students safe. And we have free test kits that were distributed to each county and to many community organizations. There are also eight free over-the-counter tests that you can get per month. Um, they're available using your health insurance, either for reimbursement or in some places they'll just let you get the eight without having to pay anything up front. Um, some health centers and community clinics, FQHCs and long-term care facilities also are able to receive free tests and have been doing so. Um, and testing's available at many pharmacies, clinics, and labs. So please visit the hawaiicovid19.com website for more information on testing and vaccination. That's hawaiicovid19.com. And then with regards to um, therapeutics, there are therapeutic COVID medicines that can be used to help treat those who are at high risk for severe illness. They're available by prescription throughout the state. They should be readily available to everybody who needs them, and we have a good supply and a good allocation right now in our state. These include monoclonal medications and antiviral pills. Contact your healthcare provider, or again, go to hawaiicovid19.com to find out where you can get these medications. Uh, treatments do not replace vaccines, but they really can help for those who are at highest risk should they get infected with COVID. And that was Dr. Libby Char, State Health Director, talking about how we treat COVID cases going forward. At the news conference yesterday, a Hawaii's public school superintendent uh, addressed concerns that families have as we head into the end of the school year with many in-person events from proms to graduations. Here's Keith Hayashi. Just as we are seeing in the broader community, case counts are also increasing in our schools. This marks the fifth straight week of increased case counts since spring break. A total of 396 confirmed or probable cases 
were reported across the public school system last week. We know we play an important role in the state's fight against COVID because our system is so large. We have 257 schools and more than 200,000 students and staff statewide. Because of the commitment of our staff, students, and families, we've been able to keep schools open for in-person learning this school year, and we want to finish the school year strong. We have less than a month to go. Part of that effort includes keeping universal indoor masking in place for the remaining four weeks of the school year. Under the Department of Health's guidance for K-12 schools, keeping this added protection in place means quarantining of in-school exposures is no longer required. This major shift in quarantine guidance aligns with our ongoing priority of maintaining in-person learning for our students. As much as we all want to return to pre-COVID practices, like Dr. Kimball, Dr. Char, and Governor Ige said, we are still in a pandemic and we must act accordingly. Graduation ceremonies are, are coming up in the next few weeks. We want to be sure that our students can celebrate this special occasion that they deserve, but it has to be done safely. We've provided overarching guidance and safety parameters for schools to use when planning their ceremonies. There are different considerations for different venues. Schools have the flexibility to determine event-specific details to maintain the health and safety of all attendees. So we ask for everyone's help to please be mindful and respectful of the safety procedures that schools are putting in place to ensure that our graduations do not create an added risk of exposure and spread of the virus. Participating in graduation ceremonies is a privilege and one that definitely we want our students to enjoy and remember. To help with this effort, we have received 700,000 home test kits in partnership with the Department of Health. Over the last three weeks, we have distributed nearly 400,000 kits to our schools. We appreciate our close partnership and guidance from DOH and the ongoing support from the governor's office, our mayors, and other partners and stakeholders. We will be meeting with DOH to determine safety protocols for summer school and next school year and we'll make those announcements when appropriate. Thank you. That was Interim Superintendent Keith Hayashi talking at a news conference, addressing concerns that families have about the uptick in COVID cases in our schools and our response to managing the COVID numbers as we close out the school year across the state. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. 
In today's Backyard Quiz, file this one under It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. The time was 1955, and the idea was a simple one. Induce, uh, introduce a carnivorous snail to get rid of an annoying and destructive pest. The pest was the giant African land snail, which was busily devouring plant life in Hawaii's gardens and agricultural fields. So we tried a firefight with fire approach, or more of a fight snail with snail strategy. The new introduction was another snail that didn't eat plants. Instead, it was only too happy to chow down on its fellow snails and slugs. Nobody thought much about the Hawaii uh, about Hawaii's native tree snails, which performed an essential function: eating the algae that grows on the leaves of trees, keeping them clean and healthy. The introduced critter we're thinking of this morning posed no threat to the giant African land snail, but promptly began eating its way through Hawaii's endemic species. For today's quiz, can you name the snail? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. legislative session is to end next week. A holdup in the process has been the state budget, but conference committee members finally reached an agreement yesterday afternoon. That's the subject of our reality check with Honolulu Civil Civil Beat opinion and politics editor Chad Blair. He's covering for political reporter Kevin Dayton. Hi, Chad. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. So, busy day down there at the big house. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Dayton, Blaze Level, Cassie Ordonio, a couple of other of our reporters, uh, as well as reporters from all over uh, other media outlets as well, including HPR. Yeah, it's conference committee. Things are going to die <laughs> today and tomorrow. There is a 6 p.m. deadline today for non-fiscal bills, a 6 p.m. deadline tomorrow for fiscal bills, and then everything wraps up next week. Although, there is some talk, I, I don't know how legitimate, but there is some talk that they may have to extend session if they can't get things done. But we'll see. Uh, I, a lot's going to be happening. But, yeah, I'm covering for Kevin. And big news, $8.7 billion. That is a record for our state budget. This is the general fund operating budget. Uh, this is for the the fiscal year that begins July 1st. That's fiscal year 23, and it's it's enormous. It's $400 million more than Governor David Ige requested way back in December, but a lot's changed uh, since December. Yeah, and, you know, this was something that uh, we were expecting, you know, last week, <laughs> right, yeah, uh, an agreement, yeah. and it's just like uh, they're still chipping away at it. And so finally they did you know, get agreement on this budget, but people are still waiting to see the budget sheets to see what right. And 
you know, I, everything just hinges on the budget. You really can't move forward with any other bills until the budget is settled. But I can, you know, if you look at our story, Kevin's story is up on the site. Uh, take a look at Corey Lum's photos. Uh, Sylvia Luke, uh, Kyle Yamashita, Donovan Dela Cruz, even though he's wearing a mask. Big smiles. I mean, you could tell that they are visibly relieved. <laughs> yes. But uh, a lot of details are still uh, to be worked out. But this much we do know, there's going to be $6 billion in construction, CIP as we call it, capital improvement projects, six B billion, uh, and so that's probably going to create a lot of jobs. And there are schools that are planned on Maui on Oahu. Uh, another big item, three hundred and fifty million dollars for a new Aloha Stadium. Although I think the stadium is projected to cost more. But uh, speaking of Halava, because that's the general area, no additional planning money, at least not yet, for a new jail. Right, relocating the Oahu Correctional Center to Halaba. But those are some of the big ticket items that Kevin did get in his story today. Yeah, that was surprising to me that they wouldn't uh, make progress on that. On the but, you know, two, yeah, $2 billion, we didn't think it was going to be like this back in December, but so much has rebounded uh, in, in terms of tourism, the, the revenue from taxes uh, as we recover from, from COVID. And it's it, there's just a lot of money to play with. Sylvia Luke, the, hi, the House Finance Chair, did say they wanted to focus on one-time expenses rather than, you know, start a new program or programs, plural, and, and, and create new hires. Let's try and settle things that are one-offs, if you will. Here's an example. Uh, kind of caught me by surprise. $26 million for adult dental benefits. This is out of the Hawaii Medicaid program. That was something that had been cut uh, back in the Great Recession in, in 2009. To, right, 2009. So uh, it's it's um, they wanted to take care of some things that they could take care of now without creating, if you will, increasing the size of our government. Yeah, and uh, I know they did uh, reach agreement uh, on the um, Ohana Zones funding, and that was something I know that the state homeless co- coordinator was was hopeful that they would do, uh, and they would you know continue that program because we do yeah, have f- this 15. housing crisis. Yeah, we sure do. Fifteen million dollars, I think, is the figure for that, and these are transitional. Places to help people uh, get off the streets to you know get a shower to get help finding a job, and that program was set to expire. It's now been extended to 2026. So that's another thing. Ohana zones, a, a very encouraging development for uh, you know Scott Marshige and others uh, advocates for taking care of our homeless, uh, our homeless families. Yes, yeah. and then uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands uh, also getting a boost. And then I guess we're we'll wait to see about the votes for the settlement in that uh, lawsuit case next week. Right. Yeah. It, 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 we're, it is possible that, and I know we're nearing the end of our report, but looking at almost $900 million or more, almost a billion dollars for, for Hawaiian home, home uh, programs, right? $300 million plus for that settlement if it's approved, and then also for uh, $600 million for Hawaiian homelands itself. We'll see if it works out, but big bucks for Native Hawaiian uh, Hawaiian homeland programs. Yeah. Uh, lots of uh, energy buzzing around the Capitol in the last, this last <laughs> couple of days. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair. He was covering for Kevin Dayton. You can read Kevin's story on the budget at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. 
The HOMA Select Talks series offers new perspectives and insights from curators and staff about select artworks from the permanent collection. More at honolulumuseum.org events. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to Dr. David Hiranaka, MD and DMD. Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra and Ballet Hawaii. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University. Its online Doctor of Nursing Practice program helps to develop nurse practitioners and nurse leaders. Virtual information sessions at chaminade.edu. A picture may be worth a thousand words, but the novel idea of painting books on a shelf and turning those images back into a book is one of those quirky stories that just draws you in wanting to for more. We caught up with book illustrator Jane Mount, who now calls Maui home. She shares the story of her illustrated book, Bibliophile, 50 Postcards. So I was still living in New York City, and I had for a long time co-founded a couple internet companies and did that, but I got really burnt out after a while, and I would paint as a hobby in my spare time, and I had a little studio space, but then the owners of the building sold sold it, and so I lost that space, so I had to start painting at home, and I have a, a because it's Manhattan, I had a very tiny apartment and a very tiny dining room table, so I had to sort of rethink what I was doing instead of painting larger pieces on a wall, try to focus on painting, you know, very small pieces at my table. And I was a little overwhelmed. I had this blank sheets of paper, no idea what to do. And I was sitting next to our built-in bookshelves. And I love books. I have been crazy avid reader since I was a little kid. So I looked at the books and I thought, well, books are beautiful. And look at all the colors of the spines next to each other. I'll just paint some of those. And then the paper won't be blank anymore. And we'll see where it goes from there. And while I was doing it, a friend of my husband's came over um, to visit, and he saw him, and he's like, oh, my gosh, what are those? I want to buy all of those little drawings right now. And I was like, wow, that is so weird. Like, as an artist, I don't know, for me at least, that is a very rare occurrence that someone has that visceral response to something that, that I've made. And so I thought, well, there's something to this. Let me push it a little further and see how far it goes. And from there, I started drawing the books on friends' shelves. Like I would go to their house almost as if you're, you know, a dinner party voyeur and and see what books they have and then draw those together. And that was fun. But I, I realized eventually that it would actually be much more interesting if I just asked them, like, what are your favorite books? What are the books that changed your life, that made you who you are, that really struck you and that would be it became like painting um, a portrait of someone from the inside like what their internal life is as opposed to just from the outside so that just one thing led to another and so drawing books sort of opened a whole lot of doors and I started illustrating a lot of other things but that's still uh, I still draw more books than anything else for sure. Yeah, so it it is like you get to know somebody from the inside out when you see the books they keep. Totally. I mean, 
if you think about for yourself, you know, you try to name the 10 uh, books that really changed you. It's a, it's really, it's a very hard thing to do because you end up having to leave a lot out that you love. But just to figure out, you know, which ones really were important and that taught you something. Like I can think of the first book I remember reading that really taught me something was um, The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster. And it's about a boy, you know, it's a book I read when I was probably nine years old. And it's about a little boy who is bored. He's always bored. And I remember being always bored. And then, you know, he discovers a, a different world that he can get to by driving through uh, a toll booth. And that book sort of taught me, you know, if I'm bored, it's my own fault. Like there are ways to find things. You can you can find interesting things in life um, if you just keep looking and keep making new new ideas and new projects. And so that's that book is probably the first one that I would put on my bookshelf, you know, my ideal bookshelf. So that's how I think of it. And if you can think of, if people tell you those books, you really have a huge insight into, you know, who they really are. I don't know if you've seen, let's say, common books pop up on your friends' bookshelves, you know, as you as you go to paint them. Totally. I mean, at this point, after I've been doing this for uh, over 10 years now, and I... I've painted thousands and thousands and thousands of books for people um, and made custom, you know, commissions, custom paintings and prints um, for people that I know and that I don't know. I've never met before. So many of them. And and there are many common books that come up and you can see you start to see trends in what people love. And it's just it's endlessly fascinating, to be honest. So you have painted your bookshelf? (laughs) I have done mine. Yeah, it was very hard. And every day I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, if I read a new book, I'm like, maybe I have to add that. Maybe I have to delete something else. <laughs> well, so when you when you were putting your book together, what was that feeling like when you when you got done, when, when it got published? Um, it was great. The book. So I um, the book that I made, I have a book that I uh, that was published by Chronicle Books in 2018, and it's called Bibliophile. And the idea there was to really look at books that people love and basically sort of form a almost like if you walk through your favorite independent bookstore like the shop or some other one and you have people who really know all the books in it and have read so many recommending them to you. So the idea was to try to give that warm feeling of of helping you find books that you might love that might be your next great read. Um, all in the form of a book. So that so to do that, I drew a whole bunch of stacks of different books based on genre and different categories, like you know, love and romance or uh, adventure books and things like that. And then I also drew pictures of a whole bunch of independent bookstores around the world that are very inspiring places run by very inspiring people. I drew different libraries where you can find books around the world and things like that. So I tried to just give all different ways of getting to books that you might love. And it was great. And that came out in 2018 and has done really well. So this actually in 2021, I worked with a co-author named Jamise Harper, and we created a second spin-off of that, which is really focused on reading diversely and reading books by authors of color and all different kinds of people and just making sure that you can find more books by people who are often underrepresented in in they're writing the books but they're not necessarily getting the press or the focus or the attention or the money behind the books that they deserve so we wanted to try to help remedy that and then of the bookstores that you've been into that you've come to love you have a favorite 
Well, here in Hawaii, the shop is definitely my favorite one. I think it's a brilliant bookstore. It's beautiful. Um, we actually, the only bookstore we really have here on Maui is uh, the Barnes & Noble. And while I'm thrilled that it's here, I would be also extremely thrilled if anyone wants to come open an independent bookstore here on Maui. That would be awesome. <laughs> so if any listeners want to do that, please, I will help. <laughs> you know, because you do paint book covers and book spines, I mean, what do you make of that you know, you don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> I think we totally judge books by their cover, but I think we also are very forgiving of covers as well. <laughs> we, we can still love a book even if uh, the cover isn't the best, I can tell you. And I, I, will, I always put out a plea to um, any book cover designers out there, please make the spines as interesting as you make the covers as someone who, <laughs> who looks at spines more than most people. But the spines often face out on shelves, so, you know, the better they look, um, the more attention they'll get. Of all the books that you've poured over through your work, do you have a story about maybe an unusual one? Anything that stands out? Probably what's most interesting to me are what are the books that I paint over and over and over again to the point where I would be happy if I if no, I don't ever have to paint them again <laughs> just because it gets, you know, a little, it's more exciting to paint new things. But um, I would say if I never have to paint To Kill a Mockingbird or Pride and Prejudice again, I'd be okay with that because uh, they are probably the two most popular books I, I paint. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's not the Bible, huh? <laughs> No, I do paint the Bible quite often, but not near as much as as those two. <laughs> okay. Gosh, anything else? I don't know. Just, uh, you know, just your love of illustrating that, you know, has now just become what you do. Yeah, it has. And it's, I mean, I cannot think of anything luckier than to be able to spend my time uh, drawing. And drawing books is one thing, but it's open doors to being able to draw a whole lot of other things. And I'm currently now working on uh, an illustrated kids book, uh, both writing and illustrating a kids book. So I'm very excited about that. It's something I've dreamt of doing since I was a kid and totally in love with books. So I'm very excited about it. And no title for that book yet, but should be out next fall. And that was Jane Mount, one of two illustrators who will be helping to celebrate Indie Bookstore Day across the nation. You can meet Mount as well as Adam J. Kurtz at the shop in Kaimuki this Saturday, where a full day of all things bookish are on tap at this neighborhood bookstore. Did you know that women were the first brewers of beer? This may be a surprising bit of history, as the beer industry is very male-dominated in modern society. H.P.R.'s Lillian Song recently visited Hanakoa Brewing Company in Honolulu to talk about women in local brewing with co-founder and director of operations, Chrissy Pinney. I don't consider myself a brewer. I know the process, I know how, but that's not iced teas. That's not what I you know, want to do per se, it is a hard labor job. You know, you are constantly cleaning. You are constantly creating recipes. Like personally, I'm not a cook in the kitchen. Like it's not what gives me passion and joy. I'd prefer to tell the story, connect with people. That's why I fell in love with beer. So for people that are starting out, the beer industry is so vast as far as what you can do. You could be a representative for a brewery and sell it. And it's not your typical sales job. It's building relationships. It's talking to people and making sure that they are into that ethos that you're trying to create and that it's respected also in their tap rooms. 
you could be a brewer because you love the science and the recipes. You could be in marketing because you want to tell the story. It just, it depends on what your passion is and if you're passionate about beer as well. So if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, Chrissy, tell me, talk to me about what will it take to be a, is there a masculine and feminine word for brewmaster? That's a great question. Ironically, Josh, my husband, hates the term brewmaster because it's master of none. Like, you're always learning. You're never going to be the master of brewing because beer is ever evolving. Like, a few years ago, we didn't have hard seltzers. Hazy IPAs were just invented, like, seven years ago. Like, that did not exist. But beer world is cyclical. So, And I I call it very punk rock. For every rule there is in craft beer, there's going to be something that breaks it that is true to a different style or a different way of brewing. So first of all, master brewer, I personally would say does not exist, but I don't believe that there's a genderized term for brewers. I do feel like, and I'm sure our lead brewer, Roxane would back me up on this. We would love for there to be a day where it's not just, oh, she's a badass chick brewer. It's like, no, she's just a badass brewer. Like, being a certain gender shouldn't qualify you over anything or be that token of diversity. We did a collaboration with Pink Boots Society for International Women's Day, March 8th. That's kind of a world-renowned day to brew a beer for Pink Boots Society. Pink Boots Society exists to um, anybody that identifies as female and works in fermented beverages. It started just with beer and it started just with brewers. And then it evolved into like, well, if you work in marketing, you're deserving. Or if you work on the taproom side or packaging, you're deserving of these opportunities. And it exists to try and break the glass ceiling that women experience in male-dominated industries like beer through educational opportunities. So that way if it's between me and, you know, Billy Joe over here and we have the same experience, if I can throw down on my resume that I went to Germany to study hops or I had this Siebel internship, then that should set me apart, hopefully, just based on education. It's been such a collaborative club for me where I've I've met lifelong friends. I've met heroes of mine where I just can't believe that like they know my name and I'm talking to this legend. Women that have brewed, like Jen Jordan is one of them, but now I can call her my faraway friend. And we met brewing at Sierra Nevada on International Women's Day for Pink Boots Society. And this is somebody that was the head brewer of Anchor for years. And now she's running Laughing Monk in the Bay Area. So heroes that like forged the path so I could exist in this industry, let alone brewing. So love, love it. And Roxane ran that day and it got to a point where I was like, oh, well, we just need to put up a Facebook event so everybody can know what the details are. And she was like, no, take it down. We're too full. I I have 40 people coming. (laughs) So I was like, I just love that she's taking the torch and has been for years and I just want to give her as much of a platform as possible and whatever resources I can because I know what that's like to meet that you know legendary hero brewer and it's life-changing. Were there other breweries in Hawaii taking part on that day? Absolutely well I flew rocks over to Maui to do it with the Mahalo Ale Works people. As far as here we hosted people from Kona, from Broken Boundary, from Waikiki Brewing, from Beer Lab. 
And we even had some friends that work in a brewery in Oakland at Ghost Town that were just in town. And I was like, oh, you're going to come in Tuesday? We're actually brewing Pink Boots that day. And they're like, oh, great, I'm coming down. So it's, it's really a fun collaborative effort. So to be able to toss ideas around and to be able to talk about the experience and just be like, you know, do you face sexism in the industry? Like, how do you deal with it? And I feel like for so long, women were in this industry kind of stifled and weren't talking. And it takes time to kind of get past that boys club mentality that exists to be like, hey, I don't want to be treated this way or, hey, this isn't really fair. Why is it that, you know, he can drive the forklift, but I can't? what sexist values are instilled in this industry that we just don't even think about because it's an everyday thing. But by having that conversation, by talking about it, by raising awareness and making people think about, yeah, why is it that you don't get to drive the forklift? Mm -hmm. Maybe that question was never asked, but now having it part of a regular conversation out there, people are addressing this. Right, right. I feel like there's always been pseudo hyper-masculine jobs. And I say pseudo because really, a job shouldn't be gendered. I think that we just think of hard labor jobs as like, oh, that's man's work, you know, pull him by his bootstraps, like, you know, leathery hands, he works hard, which is not a bad thing. Like, cool, you work hard, but women can work hard too. So why is that different? Why, I mean, society is just so complex, but it's just interesting to dissect and be like, well, how can I make my space here and not be hyper-masculine, be present in my femininity, but still do the job well? So Shoots to Boots coming out of the collab with the Pink Boot Society this year in March. Yes, yeah, we brewed it on March 8th. Concepts, that was all rocks planning that. Basically, Yakima Chief Hops will sponsor a specific blend. So any brewery that purchases that, there is a donation to Pink Boot Society as well. So it's kind of tradition to brew with the Pink Boots blend. All over the world, people will come up with different recipes with that ingredient or mesh of ingredients. We released it April 1st. What has your customer response been to number seven, Shoots to Boots? It's been great. I'm excited. It's another hazy IPA, so I feel like it's a crowd pleaser, but with a good cause behind it. These collaborative beers, all the styles are very different. We did a beer last year um, called Shine a Light for and the Backlog and the local Hawaii um, Sexual Assault Treatment Center and we decided this year to make it a global collaboration. So we are launching that on the 29th because it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Unfortunately, it is still an issue. It's something that we are scared to talk about. I feel like it's taboo and there's a lot of shame surrounding it. So that's why I wanted to open up that can of worms, so to speak, to be able to voice support for survivors to say that those things are we do not condone I feel like there's an obvious attachment with rape culture unfortunately to alcohol as if that's some sort of you know sugar coater or that's why but it's really the behavior it has nothing to do with alcohol I know plenty of people that have been wasted drunk unfortunately but never tried to force their way on me or my friends and vice versa I've been plenty drunk and I've never tried to force myself on top of somebody or toward yeah it should not exist and I feel like alcohol is used as a scapegoat ideally we don't want anybody to be blistering drunk but you should still be able to practice safe sexuality and it's a really loaded subject and 
you know, with everything happening in craft beer right now with Brave Noise and Rat Magnet and kind of the Me Too movement in craft beer, I kind of wanted to try taking a very proactive approach in our own way. Where it's like, okay, we know these behaviors exist. We see it every day. We've just had this huge outing as far as people that have been aggressors. How do we be proactive? How do we stop it before it happens? How do we keep an eye on each other and make sure each other's safe? So that's what that beer is intended for. I'm really nervous. <laughs> I'm really excited. I just hope it's successful. Luckily last year it was. It was a Saison that was Imperial. We changed the recipe so that way it would be more easy for brewers to throw onto their production log. So it's going to be a hoppy session ale or a hoppy blonde style. So people can throw whatever hops they want at it. It's a relatively inexpensive beer to make. And most every brewery should be able to make a blonde or a session IPA if they need to. You're, you're talking about that story behind it, but everybody can produce it, but to share the story of Shine the Light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shine a Light. So it's in collaboration with, so Joyful Heart Foundation is the main foundation. It was started by Mershka Hargaday. She's the female detective on SVU Law & Order. Been watching that for years. An arm of Joyful Heart Foundation is End the Backlog, which works to end the backlog of untested rape kits, which is so staggering. I feel like so many people don't know that that exists, that there is a backlog, because if you think about it, after you've been assaulted, you need to undergo this very invasive kit where every piece of you is swabbed after you've had one of the most traumatic experiences of your life, and you need to decide to do that within 24, 48 hours, it's a tiny window when there's so many thoughts and emotions going through your head and to even gain the courage to do that and to try and gain some sort of evidence and speak your truth, the fact that those tests are just sitting on shelves is so heartbreaking. Like we wonder why, you know, oh, well, I would believe you, why don't you report it? It's like, even if you do report it, is it just gonna sit on a shelf? It's heartbreaking and they're, I'm sure are plenty of you know, multiple offenders that could have been caught earlier if that was just tested because women were strong enough to come forward and to go through that invasive process. And so you know, that program is near and dear to my heart. Joyful Heart Foundation as a whole basically works to end sexual assault and violence towards everyone. As, as a survivor, like it does take people talking about it and saying lending support because you know we've been in those chat rooms or reddit where you know you hear like oh i don't know i don't believe her and in secret there's going to be someone around you that's like okay you probably wouldn't believe me either and that's a really slippery slope every situation is different and i think if we talk about it more more people can gain the courage to come forward and own their story and be stronger because of it and help others too. So I started this story thinking one thing, doing the research, and then just being here in your space, talking with you, and and it's really cool to see how you can have fun, but you're also very mindful and you have important things that you want to share with your community, and you do it through what you're doing here at Hanakoa. I'm just thankful. like. I feel really lucky that I am in the position that I'm in now, and I feel like that's why I feel the need to, you know, do as much help as I can because I've been in those positions where I can't help or I'm the one that needs help, and it's just, you know, there's nothing. So 
I just feel really thankful that I have these resources at my fingertips and we can do something good with it. And the people that we've met that have become family are just amazing. It, it's just honestly a true blessing. That was Hanakoa co-founder and director of operations, Chrissy uh, Penny with HPR's Lillian Song. As you heard, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and Hanakoa sets to launch its global beer collab, Shine a Light, tomorrow in support of sexual assault survivors and to help spur proactive change. We'll share links at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin May 31st. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Connie Zweig, author of Meeting the Shadow and the Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the hidden spiritual gifts of our longevity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing parenting and child development programs that help strengthen family relationships, such as parents and children together. NairitHawaii.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about a non-native species that was brought to the islands to devour invasive snails and instead has wreaked havoc on endemic species. It's a snail that is native to the Americas and in North America is native to the southeast U.S. It has been introduced at several sites around the world for snail control, almost always with disastrous results. Set a snail to catch a snail, so the thinking went, and... Uh, Euglandina rosea seemed to fit the bill in the battle against the giant African land snail. Trouble is, this more recent introduced species doesn't like to take on snails larger than itself. So its introduction, like so many others, went terribly wrong. According to the Global Invasive Species Database, the critter we're thinking of today is one of the world's 100 worst invaders linked to the extinction and decline of numerous snail species everywhere that it has been introduced. We asked you its name or names. They are Cannibal Snail or Rosy Wolf Snail. And our winner today, Brendan Holland, a professor at Hawaii Pacific University, who has authored several papers on both predatory and endemic snails. And Professor Holland, maybe we need to have a conversation with you on the show about snails. Thanks so much for calling in. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
And we wrap up our series on hibiscus today. You can't talk about Hawaii's hybridized hibiscus without mentioning the Charles Ni'i Nursery tucked away in Kamiluiki Valley in Hawaii. It's a second-generation family business whose future is uncertain. Glenn Ni'i sat down with us one afternoon to share the story of how his father got hooked on hybridizing. The Blooms have found new homes in the Kew Gardens in London and the Kyoto Gardens in Japan. Ni'i's father, Charles, a founder of the Hawaii Hibiscus Society, is said to have hybridized more than a thousand varieties. And Glenn has toiled to keep the family legacy alive. But the nursery's uh, day in the valley could be numbered. My dad was uh, a truck farmer way back when, pig farmer. And uh, he bought a home in Nainahaina way back when, in 1950. And he decided to grow, he needs plants for his landscaping. So he started to grow plants. And then from there, he says, I need, you know, got to a hibiscus. And from there forth, he thought, hey, this is interesting. You know, I can do different colors and things like that. Um, he was having fun with it. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and as I grew up, I didn't do much, too much, much with it. But I would say I got into it by like the early 70s, mid-70s, got heavy into it. And uh, we did a lot of hybridizing here. We did a lot of different varieties. Uh, what we look for as far as the texture of the flower, the color of the flower, longer lasting. And he'd come up with a couple varieties that were like two to three days lasting. Most hibiscus will be just one day flower. And some of the notable ones he's done is like Duke Hanamoku. He's done a Nedinka Hanamoku. Duke is really strong flower. Then we did our own varieties. Uh, with so-called Ni'i varieties, Ni'i Magic, Ni'i Yellow. And uh, my, my kids, or his grandkids, got into it and said, you know, we got a new one today, what do we name this, you know? And we came up with some doozies. <laughs> we had fun with it, you know? Well, so how many do you think your dad has done, and how many have you done? And, you know? um, I would think, we, at one time, we were doing like maybe three to 400 varieties. And I would say at least 30 to 40% was our own crosses. And so again, we were looking for quality of the color, texture, and long, ever, you know, longer lasting. So what do you look for when you say the quality, the, the texture, what's better in your mind? Yeah, okay. We're looking for, when we look at the texture, the fold of the leaves and the petals on the flower, um, the firmness and the coloration, if it's a blending type of color, more clear-cut colors, if it's multi, uh, things like that, uh, short stamen, long stamen. And um, we found a few pretty good ones. But a lot of it we're doing with some other people's varieties that we cross over to with our own and be developed our own. And it's, it was fun because we could cross-pollinate a hibiscus, and within a year, well, a little bit more, maybe 14 months, we could get a flower. A lot of times, though, the first flower is not the true flower, so we wait till a couple more blooms to make sure that's what we want or that's what we like. So we do it hundreds, but not all of them made it. <laughs> it's, but it's fun. Is I don't know, is there some trick to it? You just have a green thumb, a golden touch? I don't know. No, I mean, there, there are some flowers or some varieties are more receptible from, pollen, from pollination, and each seed pod you may get from anywhere from two or three to about maybe eight or ten but not all of them are good 
So you just got to keep growing them. And like I say, they germinate. After you get the seeds going, they'll germinate by like maybe two, two months. You'll get a seedling to grow. But it won't flower for at least another year, which is pretty fast for, you know, hibiscus. And so of your kids, I mean, they're interested in it? Uh, at this point, no. They see us working eight days a week, hardly any vacations, whatnot. So they have kind of done their own thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to push, you know. Um, they're kind of doing their own thing. One's an educator and one's an HR, you know. So I'm satisfied with that. But uh, try to keep my father's legacies alive. It's hard. Of the varieties that you've uh, played around with, mm -hmm. <laughs> do you have any favorites? I don't know. <laughs> One of them would be Duke Kahanamoku. Uh, Ni'i Magic. Yeah, what, what, what do those look like? The Duke is a kind of a yellow, dominant yellow. Fades kind of a uh, creamy brownish color with a white, kind of whitish center. And that one's a two to three day flower. Uh, the Ni'i Yellow developed, is that, that one's about eight or nine inches across. Canary Yellow with a white center. That one lasts two to three days too, which is really, really nice. So we try to go off of those heavy textured and try to cross pollinate and get those going. It's, it's fun, you know, it's fun. I hear there's a lime green hibiscus over in Waimea Falls Park. Okay, I, people ask me, oh, what colors do you have? I says, well, I'll tell you what I don't have. It's easier. I don't, we don't you know, never develop any true blues or greens or blacks. And so, you know, if you come up with a green or it's, a lot of people, the blues are the, kind of a faded lavenderish color, you know, close but no price, you know, on that one. And then do you bring in uh, hibiscus from other places to play around with? I mean, uh, sometimes we do. If you can get some in from the mainland or whatever, we see different varieties or we, look the, we like the textures of the, the flower or the colors. We'll bring it in. We try to cross pollinate with some of our varieties here to get a better quality flower. You know? Is there anything that you're kind of excited about now that you're playing with? No, because I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of laying back right now. Um, our lease here is getting real short, so I can't be expanding right now. But I do want to continue the legacy of the hibiscus, you know. So how many acres do you have here? Totally, I have about six and a half. But utilizing only about maybe two, two and a half acres right now. Uh, just the wife and I, that's it. Yeah, that's a lot of work. I mean, you, I drove up here, you got the dumpster and the heavy equipment. Yeah, it never ends. So it's... Uh, it's ongoing. Every day is good, good fun. It's just fun, you know. And then, um, gosh, I mean, so the, the land lease is with Kamehameha Schools? Yes. Yeah. So um, our uh, master lease ends up in 2025, mid-year. So that's about two and a half more years. Um, so truthfully, for me, I'm getting up there in age. I don't know whether I'm going to stay or not. But I want to, I have... I want to do backyard or at least I'll, I'll never stop growing plants. Put it that way. It's in the blood. <laughs> but whether you want to do six acres or two acres, you uh, might want to. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I'd like to do maybe like, like an acre, but where can you get an acre, you know, long term, close by? <laughs> Have you started negotiating? Actually, we tried. It's not on the table. Okay. You just got to wait and see. Uh, yep. So who knows what the future brings? There you go. It's um, this is one of the last strongholds in Hawaii Kai that they can develop, and we're outside the urban boundary uh, renewal, just on the border. So right now, the city and county has got us as Ag Two. 
2025, not, not just around the corner. Yo, that's going to come quick, yeah. Yeah, real quick. That was Glenn Nee of Charles Nee Nursery in Hawaii Kai. He's one of several farmers who leases land from Kamehameha Schools. That includes the um, RS Nee Plant Nursery run by his cousins. The 87 Acre Valley is the last agricultural subdivision in East Honolulu and also home to many truck farmers who grow vegetables. KS says it is not yet decided on the future of the valley, so cannot begin lease negotiations. And that's it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanho show. We highlight films on the big screen. Give us some feedback. We've got questions about oh, anything you've heard on this show. Color Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.